you go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. When a competent observer looks for signs of despotism in a community, he looks beyond fine words and noble phrases. It's society. They work for each other. They pay each other. They buy houses. They get married and make children. That just sounds like slavery with extra steps. Go into the automobile business and compete with the auto trust. Can I go into the grocery business and compete with the chain stores? Not a chance. Monopoly is the menace of free enterprise. This is just a big money-making machine. They're wandering through a maze of inauthentic, fake landscapes, and they can't escape. The message in all this is that the capitalist system in America is unfair and is, in fact, a failure at providing for basic human needs or maintaining continued national growth. I, I can't wait for like the episode of like who wants to be a millionaire where all the contestants like team up and they overpower the hosts and they share the money. Bottom-up horizontal connection is sharing at all levels, not top-down control. We take it in turns to act as a sort of executive officer for the week. Because as communities go, so goes the nation. Welcome, welcome back in the studio. It is me, Daniel Jonathan Platt, here in Albany, New York, in the cold of winter. But I like, I'm a skier, folks. I know how to dress for cold, although my hands can't really manipulate the uh, dials while wearing gloves. Don't need those uh, fingerless gloves, I guess. But um, I saw a pair of those at Food Not Bombs yesterday. Oh, but uh, someone else definitely needed them more than me was right next to me. So I'm like, gotta let it go. So I'm back here in the studio live after a month. It wasn't just because it was cold in the studio. It was more uh, my site was down. So why make new episodes if I can't post them as a podcast? Because this is primarily a podcast. But of course, I have plenty of content, old shows to throw back on. I mean, after... For three, four years of doing this. I'm sure if you're a new listener or more recent, or you've been listening for two years, there are episodes that you haven't heard. I'm up to 100 and almost 140 now. Speaking of old episodes um, and old content, I'm basically working through my stockpile of articles. Some of them are three years old. But being someone in their 30s, 33, I'm uh, not really... I don't experience time year to year much anymore. It's more of a five-year cycle. At least maybe that's my mindset on that mindset of a five-year plan. and uh, Or the five-year, like the, um, or, or the political four-year political cycle, you know. And uh, one, one, one cycle is probably about, about as good as another as far as American politics are concerned, but... Uh, I experience time that way, and, uh, and to, you know, to, I kind of, I don't know how I feel when I uh, kind of see discussions that kind of look at things year to year, compare, you know, or, or rather it's the immaturity of, oh, this year was pretty bad, wasn't it? Oh, can't wait for next year. <laughs> yeah, right. It's the year that matters. It's the year. <laughs> it's the year you hate. But similar to the meme that it's not Mondays you hate, it's the system. It's not the year you hate, man. It's it's the system that lets uh, just as many people die of a disease, preventable disease, as uh, the year before that referring to COVID strains. Um, but anyway, working through my backlog. Why? Because I'm atrophying down. I'm doing what the economy can't do. 
atrophy down. Say, I am not going to collect articles. The, the economy, it cannot work, it cannot work, ba not work backwards, it can't limit itself. It can't say, I'm not, I'm going to stop collecting articles that I, I keep having to like, oh, I, I'm never going to run out. I can keep doing new shows forever, forever, forever. Or it's like, you know, there's just going to be news. Anyway, I'm shifting the show, whether uh, I'm going to go down to an hour or not, but that's kind of the plan. I tend to go to an hour. I'm dangerously close to work, uh, having a permanent full-time position, something I have not done in six years. And I'm going to feel very uh, meditative about it, I suppose. I, I already have a picture I'm going to post with it because I'm watching the anime Cowboy Bebop, and there's an episode where um, Faye Valentine, the uh, female bounty hunter, she's sitting in this kind of kitty family restaurant uh, on a stakeout, and she's she's ordered a Sunday, but she's so uncomfortable being where she is. She has this face of disdain, this or not disdain, but discomfort. Like oh, I really don't want to be here. Anyway, but she's got a Sunday, and then she starts eating it, and that's kind of how I feel. I'm going to have the Sunday, folks. I'm going to have the consumerist Sunday. And not have to feel like, oh, you know, because I've never made more than uh, 14, 15 grand in my life a year. But anyway, enough about my stats. Let's talk about national stats. Let's talk about union stats. The theme of this episode, the meta theme is dual power and creating new economies of scale uh, that are socialistic or community-based, but particularly focusing on unions, unions. Uh, not so much unionization stories. You can go to many outlets for that. But as my show, the case is I collect articles that interest me and also tie into a larger picture of things. Yeah, so to get back to the explanation, I'm working through a list of articles. Some of them go back a few years. I've collected them together into one theme show, as I always do. And I have maybe three, four, five left. And then I will switch to being more local issues and news. And I already have a plethora of things to do with that. None of it's, of course, complete, but it's more just outlines. But hey, that's where you start. You just make the outline and then you can flesh it out as you go. So let's get right into it because I've got a lot to cover. A lot I want to cover, but I'm not going to read. You know, But let's start with left voice. Uh, this is from a... 2020 post, okay. It's two years ago now. But again, like I said, I'm in a four-year span. This is still like recent past. That's how I think about it. The title, the title is, A Historic Wave of Workers' Struggle is Sweeping the U.S. and It's Speeding Up. So this um, is about the general uplift of unionization drives or union strikes that occurred during the height of the first wave of the pandemic. I'm going to refer to it the first wave. Then we had a second wave, and now we're in the third wave. We're right in the middle of the third wave. Do you think we'd have a third wave? I pretty much assume we'd have a third wave. And, of course, they all seem to be right after the holidays. It's like we can't help ourselves. We have to go have a holiday and see the folks <laughs> and do and do all, all the things that we could not do throughout the rest of the year. It's so it, We can't help ourselves, it seems. Uh, a wave of militant workers' struggles sweeping the U.S. With over 800 strikes, workouts, sickouts, and other disruptions since the beginning of March, this is 2020, this wave is being driven by two things, support 
for the uprising against the police and fear of being forced to work amid the danger of infection and death. In the past few weeks, socialists have said a lot about the role of unions in this struggle, and with good reason. Organized labor is playing a key role in the uprising against the police. Union bus drivers are refusing to transport arrested protesters in many cities. And on two separate occasions, union dock workers shut down ports across the country in many strikes to stand in solidarity with the fight against cops. All of this shows how important it is for socialists to work inside unions to push even more of them into the struggle against the police. For more solidarity strikes, for example, to kick cops out of the unions themselves. But as important as unions are, they are only part of a bigger picture. The great majority of strikes, walkouts, sickouts, and other disruptions since March are happening in non-union workplaces. Ah. This fact raises an important question. What can revolutionary socialists like myself do to help build up and channel workers' struggle beyond organized labor? You know, capital, capitalized labor. One key possibility is to agitate as widely and loudly as possible for the building of workplace committees by all those being forced back to their jobs in the pandemic, regardless of whether or not they're unionized. Now, of course, it doesn't have to be in a crisis, but really, we're in the long crisis here. So there's no better time to start than any time. There's no better place than any place. But also, to build up the organized workers' power for sabotaging and striking more workplaces in order to deepen and broaden class struggle against police, but against, well, a system that does not care for us. But it's just as important to agitate for a citywide assembly. Assemblies that could be places where the uprising in the streets can build wider, stronger connections to struggles of union members. So this is in the context when there were thousands of people in the streets. We did not organize assemblies uh, because of many, some of these events were organized by, well, Democratic Party functionaries sometimes. Or people who were very, very focused on reform and being aimed at local government already and not forming a parallel local government, which is what this is talking about. When you form an assembly, that's basically uh, not so much a mob, but it could be an organized meeting of sorts that replaces, uh, at least for a week or two, the city council. You know, if you get people together and say, okay, we're going to collect our own tax base through donations, through dues, like a union, we're going to be our own government. We're going to stop paying local taxes. We're not going to fund the cops locally anymore. Something like that. And we're going to put our money not towards local property taxes to help fund the police that oppress us, but we're going to put them into our own crisis teams, our own uh, free schools and what have you. All the things that, you know, projects and community efforts that need funding uh, and otherwise have to get it from foundations funded by the very capitalists that exploit these communities. So let's see. More on unions in this uprising, referring to the 2020 uprising. Unions are playing a key role in the current one in its first state, so maybe I'll just skip that. No, no, this, this could be new information for you. A union bus driver in Minneapolis organized his co-workers to refuse helping cops bus arrested protesters to jail. The tactic quickly spread beyond Minneapolis to San Francisco, Pittsburgh, D.C., New York, Chicago, and beyond. Meanwhile, an international president of the Amalgamated Transit Union issued a statement supporting the tactic. Bus drivers are hardly alone. Teachers in Minneapolis quickly joined the uprising against cops. Within days, the teachers' union there, Minneapolis Federation of Teachers, pushed the school district to cut its ties with the police. On June 9th, dock workers across the country engaged in a mini-strike for 8 minutes and 43 seconds, the length of time that it took to kill George Floyd, that Derek Chauvin took to kill George Floyd. 
And on June 19th, dock workers once again showed their solidarity when they shut down ports across the West Coast as part of a day of action. Now, hindsight, we didn't get massive police reform. But these gestures, these moments, these actions taken by, say, the teachers' union to remove police from the schools, let's say, is a step forward. It's demilitarizing, depolicifying our society a little bit at a time. Rank-and-file movements have been crucial for pushing unions to join the uprising. Union bureaucrats are usually reformist, if not downright reactionary. For example, the head of the AFL-CIO rejects the idea of kicking cops out. In other words, he is defending exactly the same people who murder and terrorize black and brown communities and break strikes to protect the power of the ruling class. I've seen it myself. Local strikes that um, basically because sheriffs and other police could be brought in on overtime to basically prevent an effective picket. On Friday morning, the president of the SEIU gave an interview vaguely saying that kicking police out of unions would be an option to be considered while remaining silent on the issue of police abolition. You know, not being for or against it even. Pretty easy to be against it if you're, you know, trying to walk a middle path. When bus drivers fought against Helping cops transport protesters didn't start with a union bureaucrat, started with a rank-and-file driver. And so on. Uh, seeing this power, many socialists rightly point out how important it is to struggle inside our unions to support the uprising. It's crucial that socialists help build up this rank-and-file power. We will need to create more wildcat actions in our workplaces, to push more unions into the streets for marches and demonstrations, and to force union leader- leaders to take more committed and serious action, like kicking cops out of orgs. But there's also a struggle beyond unions. Socialist strategy has to cope with the extremely small reach of unions. Nationally, only uh, 10% of the workforce is unionized, the lowest number on record in the U.S. This breaks down to 33% in the public sector and an abysmal 6% in the private sector. I saw this play out in a conversation about the Kellogg strike and sort of pseudo-boycotts where, okay, don't buy Kellogg's cereal, right, and putting that out as a boycott and um, endorsed by, you know, unions. But it's like how how many union members, you know, the um, 9 million of those that basically is represented eat cereal compared to how many in America eat cereal overall, whether it's Kellogg's or not. But it just shows just the masses amount of people you have to ask, what kind of effect is a boycott going to have when it's a national brand? And that's, and that's kind of a maybe one of the upsides for capitalism when it, when it um, monopolizes as it does, that uh, you know, local strike can have a big impact when it's a, you know, when it's a local brand or a local business. Uh, they can get canceled. They can actually, you know, you can get uh, charges brought against, you know, some racist ice cream shop owner or something of that nature. But when it's a box store, when it's a when it's General Mills, how do you affect their bottom line? Well, any way you can, but it's going to be a very energetic, you know, the militant American is, is, you know, it's not a very large group. Now, there's always the argument that you just need a tipping point number, which is roughly 5 to 6%, right? So if everyone who is unionized in America actually did one thing at once, that would be pretty big. But would it be enough to sway the rest of America? Maybe. But that's the thing. 
when it came to police abolition, it wasn't every unionized person. It wasn't every any type of person whatsoever. It was really quite a mishmash of people, but not something approaching an actual 6% of Americans. Maybe, maybe all at once, or maybe it was over the course of a few months. So in main cities that the uprising is shaking, the numbers there look a little better. Talks about unionization rates. Most exploited workers are only rarely unionized. Those kinds of workers tend to mobilize for struggle and strikes or waves during movements of mass struggle. We see exactly this dynamic playing out today with mass strike actions of workers in Amazon, Instacart, McDonald's, as well as by agricultural workers since the pandemic hit in the U.S. I covered that two years ago. Uh, In fact, Payday Report has so far tallied about 800 walkouts, strikes, and other disruptions since March 1st of 2020. This tally shows that there is a wave of militant worker struggle happening right now, and it shows that this wave is being spurred by two factors, safety concerns over COVID and support for the uprising against cops. But also, the wave is accelerating. Between March 1st and the end of May, there were 260 reported workplace disruptions, That means more than 500, or the vast majority, occurred in the last three weeks, driven above all by support for the uprising against police, and the large majority of these disruptions are happening at non-union workplaces, organized especially by restaurant and retail workers, uh, warehouse ones, agricultural laborers, meatpacking, and truck drivers. All this means we are witnessing a situation where, very rapidly, large sections of the working class are, in fact, being radicalized. At the same time, these struggles are also seemingly spontaneous. A few, like those by Amazon Instacart workers, have created infrastructure to coordinate themselves. But most are largely disconnected from each other and without a strategy to develop a wave of struggle as far as possible in coordination with anti-police. Because, well, it's got to be more than just about being anti-police or police reform, whether it's police abolition. But I'm going to have more on that later. Or I'll head on that again. Worker committees and mass assemblies everywhere. And, you know, so it's like, so it, again, or, um, this article advocates for creating worker committees, mass assemblies. So outside, not just unions that are maybe have the goal of negotiating a better contract with the owners, it's to do something that's parallel to private ownership, something that's uh, parallel to local government. If it's, you know, totally corrupt, totally, you know, bought, or totally just about crowding out alternatives by usually not, if not by uh, economic power, but laws backed by economic power. So let's see. In this way, local assemblies could be small-scale experiments in building a united front of workers and anti-racist orgs. They could serve as spaces for revolutionary socialists to argue that the fight for worker safety and the fight against cops must be part of one struggle against capitalist ruling class that wants to maintain its power and profit at any cost. And in those kinds of assemblies, socialists could help support and defend the most radical positions emerging in the uprising, like kicking cops out of unions, or totally abolishing the police, or especially seizing workplaces under worker, worker control. In this way, mass assemblies would be crucial forums for socialists to counter the Democratic Party that is frantically trying to tame and channel this uprising. And like usual, they pretty much did calling instead for the creation of our own independent revolutionary party that links the struggles of workers and the oppressed. You know, make a third a party that is labor-oriented. To me, the Greens are that. Uh, Eco-socialists. So that's a left voice. I believe they're Australian, in fact. But uh, otherwise, they're revolutionary socialists. So 
But that's uh, that's about as militant slash left wing as I'm going to get. Although if I have time, I will end the show from an anarchist point of view, kind of a introductory kind of piece, but just uh, read a few paragraphs from that because it's just more about a larger point I want to make. So moving on to kind of what workplace, taking over the workplaces looks like building dual power, something, a true alternative to the workplaces we have owned by capital and capital owners. What does it mean to have something under community ownership? How would that transition happen? What are the ways it can happen? Both the nonviolent or the non-state, the, the ways it can be done without the state, the ones facilitated by a state, or the ones done outright by a state, which I'm not actually covering. But, you know, I think you can read a, a book, a Leninist uh, book about doing that, how that works. Or anything about the histories of um, existing socialist states or states run by socialist slash communist parties and how they interact with private enterprise or capital capitalism. So this is from In These Times. It's a dispatch um, from May of last year, which would be 2021 now, I'm referring to. When these workers organized, their cafe was put up for sale. So then they bought it. In 10 months, baristas at White Electric, a coffee shop in Providence, that's Rhode Island, went from unionizing their workplace to starting one of only a few dozen worker-owned cafes in the country. Although I do not like that it's only a few dozen worker-owned cafes. But, well, if they multiply, then there'll be a hundred, and then a few hundred, and then maybe a thousand. Written by Harry August. Five former white electric coffee workers gather at the Dexter training grounds next to the province armory. Slightly stunned, earlier that morning, April 14th, they signed the purchase agreement to own the cafe. In just 10 months, the small group of baristas went from forming a union to creating a worker workers' cooperative to buying the business for around half a million dollars. If someone had told me, one day you're going to run that business across the street, I would have said, yeah, sure, okay, buddy. This is Danny Cordova, 27. Uh, who worked at White Electric since 2019, who used to eat at the cafe a decade ago when he attended nearby Central High School. These White Electric workers started organizing soon after the murder of George Floyd. They sent a letter to owner Thomas Turpin with demands to go beyond slogans and window dressing, you know, putting the sign Black Lives Matter in the window, and achieving racial justice at the cafe. The letter. Of course, how do you achieve racial justice in the business? Well, making a worker run and then worker-owned would be really what uh, what we're going for here. That way, uh, institutional prejudice and bigotry and classism can no longer play a role. So the, um, the letter, which was signed by 39 current and former staff, Kurd called for Turpin to hire more people of color, enroll in anti-oppression training, increase wages, and make the cafe wheelchair accessible among other demands. Ah, so it's also about fighting ableism, too. That's social justice warriors for you. And yeah, it's not just about the racial justice angle of hiring more uh, people of color. It's also about raising their wages, economic justice. You can't have one without the other. I refer you to the speeches of MLK, but I don't have to do that. I've done that before. There's a lot of other people who do that. So anyway... They weren't actually 
They weren't actually things we thought would happen, says Chloe Chassing, 44, who had worked at White Electric for 16 years, even before Turpin bought it in 2006. They were dreams, but they were fully all happening. You know, she's speaking, she's not writing. But it's interesting that you can have a worker basically be at a place or business and be there longer than most owners. That the, the ownership can change hands, but the workers don't. That goes to show that it's the workers that are doing the work and making the business a thing. An owner puts up the upfront capital, although if the, if the business is already there and the equipment's already there, right, capital's already been invested, a new buyer is simply taking over the value of it. Anyway, I don't need to go into all that theory and economic stuff, do I? Let's continue on the practicalities. The coffee shop, which reopened May 1st, is one of Rhode Island's few worker co-ops. Even before the pandemic eliminated many food service jobs, opportunities for workers to organize for better conditions at small restaurants were rare. Union membership, only 1.2% industry-wide in 2020. While co-ops are becoming more popular, there are only about 500 operating around the country. This is according to a Daniel Rapkin, Senior Program Director at the Democracy for Work Institute, nonprofit that tracks and supports co-ops, started by Professor Richard Wolf. Many of the white electric workers say summer 2020's national uprising over police killings of black Americans made clear the need to push for a stronger commitment to racial justice at the cafe. That's what set everything off, said Amanda Sewell, 36, who started working at the cafe in 2013 and helped draft the letter. So she's in her 30s when she starts working in 2013, so that puts her at seven years older now, so she's like 43. Turpin tells, in these times, the letter is untruthful and misleading and and disputes his characterization of him. Its description wasn't the situation at all, he says, after receiving the letter. He says he closed White Electric in July 2020 to meet with the workers and a mediator. The cafe closed again in late 2020 because of the pandemic, then reopened in January until the sale in April. The workers, however, claim the five active employees who signed the letter were laid off, but the two who didn't sign were kept on the train replacements, as described in a public petition following the letter's release. The petition adds that the fired employees were offered their jobs back, but they were still publicly appealing for community support to prevent another episode of retaliation. Following the advice of a labor lawyer, the group realized they could form an independent labor union, which they named, get this, Collaborative Union of Providence Service Workers, called CUPS. This is a good union name because it means that other people in other shops could join it or organize their own, you know, local. Unlike many other unions and co-ops, CUPS is not affiliated with any larger union, has no support staff and requires no dues, but still gives workers the ability to collectively negotiate a contract. After creating union cards, the workers requested Turpine voluntarily recognize CUPS, which he did September 8th. 2020. The very night they formed the union, the workers say, they received notice that Turpin was selling. Turpin tells in these times that he had been looking to sell for months, but records indicate it was first listed September 9th. Turpin offered the first opportunity to buy the cafe to the workers, which shows it isn't really just a matter of animus, who realized they could turn it into a worker-owned quote co-op. They raised twenty-five grand through a GoFundMe campaign, held fundraisers at farmers markets, and raffled off merchandise to accumulate the fifty-five grand down payment. 
It's been all community-driven, Kovova says. People are excited to see a place where com- workplace democracy can thrive. Ah, but then there's the rest of those payments, aren't they? They're in debt to the former owner from now on. At least until they pay it off. And what is it, half a million? Mm. Well, let's see. They got, uh, I guess that's a tenth of it out of the way. Now the worker owners are, but well, that's without interest, of course. Now the worker owners are focused on the challenge of running the cafe. The shop has no managers, and profits are distributed based on hours worked. Or just saying. Employees have to invest a $1,000 member buy-in, which can be paid with a $100 deposit and $10 from each paycheck. Chassing said, so it's like paying dues, but instead of dues, it's basically rent-to-own. Uh, she adds that while workers are still in the process of meeting their goals around racial justice, our intention is, you know, got to... You know, pay the money for the contractor to put in a ramp if you're going to make it ADA compliant. You need more capital investment, right? Okay. Uh, so Chasing says, she adds that while workers are still in process, our intention is to do all those things that are our own demands. Their broader vision extends beyond the walls of a single coffee shop, of course. That's why, Chasang says, their union name is so general. The door is wide open to other area service workers. The union's intention all along has been not to only fight for ourselves, but also serve as an advocate and resource for others. Okay. Revenge. So this is a story from Gizmodo, filed in the spring of 21, April, April of last year, and it's titled Revenge, Spectrum Workers on Strike Build Their Own ISP, written by a Whitney Kimball. And this is, uh, this is, from, this is in New York City. If, for any number of reasons, you'd like to burn telecoms to the ground and build a new internet service provider on their smoldering remains, there is some hope. New York City Spectrum workers who've weathered an anguishing four-year strike have built their own internet service provider. If the city throws its support behind it, period, comma, the People's Choice Communications, that's their name, could liberate New Yorkers from cable gangsters once and for all find it interesting that this Cosmoto writer, you know, points out the telecoms as a cartel, as a monopoly that is to be, that is, you know, universally despised. Where is the consumer unionism? Hmm? Can't just be worker unionism, right? Then it's kind of putting it, I mean, this is, this is, a, gen, this is a general American consumerist kind of lens that, you know, it's up to producers that produce things and consumers are reacting to what is produced. And it's a matter of free market principles that, the, you know, it's people will buy from what they want. And it's up to, you know, that they have the choice, but they need the choices provided. So, you know, thank goodness there's hope because these spectrum workers are making an alternative choice. But what if unions were also made out of consumers that could then boy that I mean that's basically how you effectively boycott a product now, right? It can't just be workers that do a boycott because they're just they're the ones making the thing, right? But there's way more magnitudes, more people who consume a thing, right? Because commodities are made in such large quantities compared to the past, so you kind of need consumer unions to have collective action in that realm where it really hits the powerful in their pockets, because without people buying. They have nothing. Just, just almost like, because you know, with credit and the way of our culture in the last forty years, with um, you know, hypernormalization, it's like everyone's duty is to consume. It's almost like we're working to buy things, and, and just as much as it, it's almost like you know, well, 
you could have workers strike, but then they could be easily replaced or the jobs could be outsourced. But can the consumption be outsourced? Ah. So the city itself is almost constantly fighting Spectrum itself. With its rise to dominance in New York, then Governor Cuomo has tried to evict it. Attorneys General had to chase it around for allegedly defrauding 2.2 million New York customers. And the company was accused of putting employees in harm's way just one month into the pandemic. Unionized Spectrum workers just hit the four-year anniversary on their strike, during which time Spectrum's parent company, Charter, made its CEO the third highest compensated executive in America. Spectrum workers behind the co-op, members of the IBEW, Local 3, been on strike particularly since Charter showed up in 2016 and bought Time Warner. Workers have said that the company showed no interest in a good-faith bargaining over the contract that it inherited, attempting to jettison their pensions and health insurance. Their goal was to try to eliminate the union, and we could see that from the first time they came to the bargaining table, says a survey technician striker, a Troy Walcott. They presented us with an offer that was impossible to accept. Yeah, I'm going to give an offer they can't refuse. Walcott told Gizmodo that while some have been forced to go back to Spectrum, about 1,200 of the 1,800 strikers are still holding the line and making ends meet with odd jobs. Walcott said that people are still losing homes and the strain has broken up families while media attention has dissipated. So it's not just an economic cost, of course. Everybody kind of looks past it, he said. We're kind of like a ghost in this city. After attempting, it's only news when a strike starts and when it ends. Or maybe for the first week of it. After attempting to convince the city to establish a municipal network, city-owned and run, or municipal internet, which is one way to do socialism in a way. It's community-owned if it's city-owned or it's publicly-owned. But if it can't be publicly-owned because our governments, plural, I'm referring to multiple levels, are unwilling or unable to, to do any of that. So it has to shift to community individualistic kind of methods. But anyway, so after they, they tried to do that, organizers turned to the idea of a co-op-owned model, the kind of radical concept recently in the realm of activist dreams. Workers co-own the company. The building residents own the network. The C-suite doesn't extract a cent. Residents pay for the installation fee in monthly increments, which organizers believe might range to $300 to $400 per apartment. But residents cover the cost similar to a mortgage and a monthly payment of around $10 to $20. It's not like you pay it forever, only until it's $400 more. By comparison, so basically, I guess that means um, 40 you know, like 40 payments. By comparison, Spectrum's lowest priced offering is $50 with packages going up to 150 which represent over a quarter of the public housing residents' monthly rent. Quarter. Oh, yeah, a quarter of the rent. A quarter of the, like, it's like a quarter of the rent. And, of course, you pay that forever, and it's only going to go up over time. People's Choice operates light, scalable infrastructure. The fixed wireless network is enabled by a mesh network. May have covered that a long time ago. Antennas are installed on individuals' buildings, which receive a wireless signal from the co-op central hub. Building residents then connect routers via internet cables and then operate as normal. Sasha Menderaf, a mesh network pioneer who helped architect People's Choice, compared the system to a spider web. In the event of a link break, 
building antennas can connect and reroute through each other, reducing the likelihood of a large-scale outage. Co-op makes a radical proposal in the business structure itself. Parsing out the network to customers and the ISB company to workers implies that both groups are an equal share of the bargaining power. Customers who own the infrastructure will be promised to the option to bring in a new service provider. The reverse is true for workers who can pull their service. It means people will have to collaborate, and I think that's really interesting. It means that you're going to have to pay fair wages. It means that customer service is going to be important. It's not a charity. This is, and you expect me to say solidarity, right? Well, it's a, a synonym. He says, this is a sustainable social enterprise. It also means that speeds get faster and service gets cheaper as more customers sign on. Once you get critical mass of people, you'll be able to buy more bandwidth in bulk, which drops the cost per megabit dramatically. By dramatically, I mean it can drop to multiple orders of magnitude. The difference between 1 and 2 gigs is very different than the difference between 10 and 100 gigs. It's remarkable how cheap bandwidth gets when you buy in bulk. Still, uh, they still haven't worked out all the costs, though, but they certainly offer a better return on any co-op owner's investment. We rarely get a hard metric to define how much telecoms are charging through the nose, but a 2015 investigation found that Comcast was pocketing 95% profit margins. Co-ownership necessitates transparency. The money left over from the anticipated minimum monthly payment is meant to fund community service and pay back co-owners. That's their dividends. Not stock, not stock market. So having ownership of something as big as a cable system is definitely going to be a game changer in the community. Now, of course, there's a limit here of how much and how big it is. While relatively a small number of people are currently using the system, People's Choice claims that it already has the potential to reach, reach hundreds of thousands of Bronx residents. So it's particular to the Bronx. We have a big portion of most of the Bronx covered with our antenna, Walcott said. Now we have to go building by building to let people know we're out there and start turning them on. A few dozen Spectrum strikers have been actively involved in the installations, but Walcott expects that at least 100 workers are willing, waiting in the wings for the project to scale up. Walcott says that they're equipped to take a minimum speed of 25 megabytes per second download and 3 megabytes upload, which is a requirement to legally qualify as a broadband connection. Meanwhile, Spectrum's low-income internet offers 30 megabytes per second, though the company qualifies this with the disclaimer that wireless speeds may vary. And they've had to settle in court for lying about that. Up till until this past year, this idea of creating mesh networks or fixed wireless networks was basically something that only an anarchist nerd did. Speaking as an anarchist nerd myself, says Eric Foreman, t- talking to Gizmodo as well. Foreman is a digital research fellow of the Cooperative Digital Economy, a research center that envisions worker-owned alternatives to major tech platforms. Check them out for more reading. He describes himself as a co-op developer. Uh, he says for People's Choice was mostly built by sweat equity with grants from partners like Metro IAF, nonprofit affordable housing developer, Block Power, renewable energy startup, Brooklyn Law School's tech clinic, Blip, do not know what that is, Maybe a New Yorker could tell me. Who chipped in with administrative support. Oh, maybe that's... No, that's not his place. Foreman says he's been mulling over the idea of worker co-owned co-ops since he attempted a unionization effort at a Starbucks years ago. A lot of people I've met in the restaurant industry would say their dream was to own their own restaurant someday. So I started thinking, well, 
what if we direct our energies not just to unionizing employers, employ, yeah, employers, but to helping workers become owners of the places they work? You know, maybe I should have read the last story after this one. It's the same process. The city now has to decide whether to take Spectrum strikers up on their bid. New York City is now soliciting proposals for affordable wireless networks for underserved areas like public housing. At the same time of publishing, Gizmodo was unable to immediately reach a city administrator for comment about whether they plan to consider going with pub, uh, people's choice. Even a relatively small initial investment could propel the network into a self-sustaining momentum. With significant funding up front, we can go after a 1,000 people from day one, Meredith said. The alternative is recruiting batches of 100 customers at a time who have to bear higher upfront expenses for things like all the individual pieces of equipment that they would get. But a bulk order would be much lower cost, of course. In other words, it seems that without some help, the future is uncertain. Good service isn't fully guaranteed yet, not that it is anywhere now. They might have some issues with scaling, and it's unclear if the nascent cooperative will be able to sustain employees full-time. But the fact that you're paying down the installation with a cheaply monthly bill offers a little risk to people who want to try it. Now, at this point, the city has scant excuse to reject a bold worker-led and coalition-backed alternative. I know that the city is thinking outside the box on a lot of business models behind this, Meredith said. The open question is whether they are then putting their money where their mouth is. Let's go forward. Let's see. People's Choice does prioritize the Bronx, a borough specifically left with an other dearth of spectrum service. As of November 2020, the New York City Comptroller's Office estimated that 100,000 students were still entirely without Internet. And this is, um, well, this is during the need to work uh, from home or um, schooling from home. Just a few months into the outbreak of the pandemic, the company petitioned the FCC to impose data caps, artificial limits on Internet usage, in order to charge more. Let's see. Yeah, that's the end here. Big telecoms are more interested in making 50 to $100 a month serving people on the Upper West Side than they are in the Bronx, Foreman told Gizmodo. It would be another outrage if the city gave a single cent to taxpayer dollars to Spectrum after what it's done in the past four years. Nice. To wrap up the hour on worker cooperatives slash worker ownership, a, uh, an article, a little quick one, from Grassroots Economic Organizing kind of a site blog that uh, doesn't publish a lot very often, um, though I haven't gone through it all. It's usually very generic stories, but I kind of like this one. It kind of works off of a story I did back in the, an episode titled The Co-op Question, where I talked of a program slash law, co-op law in Italy that allows people on unemployment to rather than take money for being unemployed and not being able to work for a capitalist enterprise, take that money and with, if they get a few other people to do so, start their own business and get their money, you know, unemployment money in a lump sum, right? So instead of getting a few hundred dollars a month to make ends meet, you get a lump sum which you can invest with. And particularly, you're investing in the workers themselves to do things themselves. Because after all, if people are unemployed, it's because the capitalistic or the for-profit market has failed to employ them. We do not see it that way. We see it as the employee's responsibility or the uh, worker's uh, responsibility to be employed. And if they're not being employed, it must be something wrong with them. 
So the title of this one is Why Italy Might See a Worker Cooperative Boom, uh, which is interesting considering. Um, but anyway, what I kind of mentioned in the co-op question, because that was more about being skeptical of co-op strategy as being like this linchpin in socializing the economy. Not that I'm making that same argument now. I'm kind of making the opposite where it kind of is a linchpin. But regardless of whether it's super important or not, it is part of it. It is happening now. It's something to look at. It is something to do. It's something that has not been um, criminalized. So this is cross-posted from Mutual Interest Media as well. So it's actually probably, so that's where it's really from. Published August 5th of last year as well. So this is still, it's, it's mostly recent. So a worker buyout, WBO, is when a workers collectively purchase a business from its previous owner, often creating a worker cooperative, period. Worker buyouts usually occur to try to save a business facing closure due to insolvency or the former owner retiring. The next decade may yet hold huge opportunities for worker takeovers from retiring bosses. According, and this is because there's government programs that help people do this. It's something that's encouraged, which is not something that no policy such exists in America, to my knowledge. Such policies do exist in uh, certain areas of Canada where the New Democrats have taken power. Or they had, I think in one uh, episode of Co-op Talk, uh, they uh, talked about Manitoba. Um, kind of uh, more like um, municipal investment banks. So it's like public banking, but just investing money in co-op production, worker ownership. So anyway, the next decade may yet hold huge opportunities for worker takeovers from retiring bosses. Now, this is in Europe, but I feel this very much applies to America as well, because, uh, well, let's, let's go forward. According to a report commissioned in Zurich Insurance and written by the Economist Intelligence Unit, Nearly two-thirds of small business owners in the U.K. were found to be over 50. More than one in five are aged 61 to 70. You know, these are boomers. These are people who either through uh, basically social democratic spending, Marshall Plan spending, GI Bill spending, Great Society spending, boomers could invest in themselves, in property, whatever. They, they could invest. What can a millennial like me invest in? Right. Even even if I do have a middle class job, you know, between taxes and other expenses, you know, what will be left over? I'm mostly mostly looking at, you know, people I know who have been working a full time civil service job. And, well, maybe now they're just buying a house. They're able to do it. And so now the the New York Times could finally run that story that they've all been sitting on for years, you know, a decade, saying, oh, millennials are finally buying houses. What do you expect in the market now? <sighs> Again, it's arrested. It's everything's delayed because of our economic crisis. Everything's just happening slower. But, of course, what are the actual numbers of millennials being able to buy houses? I guess it all depends on how boomers are retiring and there is some amount of economic activity that we can step in and fill, but we can't really create it ourselves because value of capital has been sucked out of the economy basically through the process of let's you know boil it down to banks get bailed out, people get sold out, put down that way. 
These small businesses are ripe for worker takeover, especially as over 60% of owners have no clear succession plan. So this immediately makes me think of how of uh, my own neighborhoods and my own um, region that, you know, there will be some business, right? And the, the owners, it's been a family business for two, maybe multiple generations, or maybe it's just been, just been a staple. It's been around for 40 years, you know? It was started back in the 60s, and it's been a staple of a neighborhood, and the owner's selling, and they need to find a seller. But who is there around to buy? It's not going to be some local person. It's never going to be some local person. Or it is, and then you basically have one person own like five restaurants. So it looks like you have five different businesses when really it's just one big owner. And they're consolidating, and they just each time someone retires, they they use the capital they're accumulating through their businesses to buy another one. And it just snowballs and there's no diversity and it's all just, it's inequality. That seems to be the process happening in my region. But otherwise, but yeah, people cry. Oh, it's so sad. This place is closing. Oh, it's got so many memories. And it's like a Toy Story 3 or something. Anyway, so the cooperative movement, let's go back to what the solution is. Cooperative movement, therefore, must mobilize so that employee takeovers are accessible to workforces. Otherwise, we might miss a golden opportunity for expanding the sector. Historically, economic and natural crises have acted as a catalyst for WBOs. The post-08 financial crisis period, for example, saw growth in new worker co-ops and other forms of labor-managed firms. For example, in Italy, particularly Italy, post-recession, the rate of emergent WBOs has grown considerably in line with unemployment rates during the crisis. As a result, unemployment, sorry, employment in cooperative the sector grew 8% between 07 and 2012 or 2011, while employment figures fell countrywide. Similarly, the last crisis caused by COVID pandemic, pandemic came with firm closures and therefore a shortfall in employment and working hours because of forced quarantines. The pandemic and the restrictive measures implemented by European governments, because they actually give a bit, uh, are predicted to push hundreds of businesses into liquidity problems and cause the loss of thousands of jobs. Well, capitalist jobs, anyway. The resultant downturn has spiked interest in the cooperative business model and worker takeovers, which isn't surprising. After all, WBOs are a tested solution that has saved failing businesses during a crisis and past downturns, establishing more resilient ones in their place. So in Italy, 87% of businesses that have been taken over by workers survive their first three years. That's way more. That's so many, so much more. I don't know if you, the stats always seem to be changing, but it's like the common stat of like, Half of new businesses fail in their first three years. This is compared to 48% of all Italian businesses, which I just said, didn't I? And that seems to be across the board, no matter the country. With COVID's impacts still being felt, so that, that's, that's basically a strike, by the way, that it's like it's American government with its regulations or however it works that's like bad for business. Well, it seems to happen in any country around the world. So... I'm not, unless it's like all government everywhere, and that's the problem, and that's why you are a full libertarian anarchist, whether or not you're right or left. So with COVID's impact still being felt in a decade of business sales about to erupt, it is key that we learn how to make WPOs as easy as possible for prospective, prospective owner workers. Okay, so I'm just going to stop for this moment. 
Let us rise up tonight with a greater readiness. Let us stand with a greater determination. Let us move on in these powerful days. These days of challenge to make America what it ought to be. We've got some difficult days in here, but it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountain top, and I've looked over, and I've seen the promised land. back to the second hour of the three left show I actually forgot to read my copy at the beginning of the first hour this program covers news issues and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy in a commons economy also known as socialism discussing a means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself meaning point of socialism anarchism and ecology Probably wave the flags of the three lefts. Alternative meeting that we are left of the left of the left. Of the left of the left of the left. Regardless, where did I leave off? I was talking about 
worker co-ops, worker ownership, just transitioning to that. How could we ever have an economy that is majority co-ops? Would the government, would capitalism let us? What would Bezos do to ensure? Because it isn't just, you know, the usual narratives I hear from people who are ranting about the state of things, that it's all, it's about the mind control, it's about culture, it's about what's in our heads. But I think what's in our heads is very much affected by the world around us. How we get our next meal. Uh, how do we pay rent? I think these things are terribly important. It is not that Bezos makes per, uh, pervasive arguments for his billions. It is not, or that if he does, he just, it's about just convincing uh, capital investors. That's who you need to convince and make arguments about. But you're not making arguments for any kind of social utility or moral argument. Just what value can be extracted? What profit can be made? And this is just how things are. If you didn't do that, then it would all collapse. How can we build something new of this this wreck that we're in while it's still moving? I mean, it's like fixing a bus while it's falling apart. But you cannot stop, can't stop the train as it heads towards the cliff. So I was talking about worker buyouts, particularly in Italy. With COVID's impact still being felt in a decade of business sales about to erupt, it is key that we learn to make learn how to make WPOs as easy as possible. It means like that the businesses are going to be up for sale. So Italy has long been held as a poster child of worker buyouts thanks to an ecosystem of support for potential worker-owned firms and legislation that makes the process more widely available. So it's not like the government's literally funding all of these things, even though it is technically government money, but it is welfare money. But it's being redirected uh, from you know giving a man a fish to teaching a man a fish, as it were. So uh, to repeat uh, what was uh, mentioned in the uh, co-op question episode I did, the Macrono Act was introduced in the mid-'80s and has been particular importance in promoting WBOs and therefore cooperatives. The act was introduced by Giovanni Marcona, the Italian Minister of Trade and Industry, and was passed to protect jobs and facilitate recovery of companies in crisis. The act aimed to safeguard workers' jobs whose workplaces were in contemplation of bankruptcy moving out of the country or selling by the owner by giving workers the legal right to convert their workplaces into cooperatives something a right that does not exist in america in the slightest place where we have rights we have rights here in america there are so many rights we do not have you have you have one right right this way <laughs> that's a that's george carlin's a quote the European Research Institute on Cooperative and Social Enterprise stated the Mercona Law in Italy was instrumental in facilitating employee buyouts, primarily providing a framework that enables cooperation among all kinds of various stakeholders. While there were upwards of a thousand worker recuperated firms in Italy in the 70s and 80s, owning from the economic turmoil of the decade, by the end of 1990 there were at least 114 active ones in existence. By 1997, the total a total of 5,569 jobs were saved or created by this process. Which isn't really a lot, is it? But that's something I think I mentioned during the co-op question, that like the numbers don't really bear this out as some kind of revolutionary program or policy. Is it a non-reformist reform? Is this the kind of law that helps us transition away from our 
inhuman economic system. Other pieces of legislation have helped boost the sector and facilitate worker takeovers. The Basivi Law, 1947, a general law on cooperatives, enhanced this constitutional recognition, providing special tax facilities. This is something kind of we have in America, but... In this case, if a cooperative were dissolved or sold, then its reserves went to another cooperative or a cooperative federation rather than distributing them among members. Thus, these reserves have been contributed to the development of a movement not only for current members but future ones. And that's very important. These reserves, among surplus from existing cooperatives, help fuel the ecosystem required to finance new cooperatives and WPOs. And when business fails, it's like the money just disappeared. Uh, or the capital just goes into the pockets of, well, rentiers. It's always the people collecting rent that always make out at the end. Vultures. Let's not become vultures ourselves, but for bits of the attention economy. All Italian cooperatives pay 3% of their surplus to co-op development funds. It's kind of like paying dues, isn't it? Uh, managed by different cooperative federations in Italy. These contributions to a solidarity fund are tax-exempt and pooled together to offer below-market loans to other cooperatives. So, you know, it's, it's a growing bit. Let's see. This is the, these are the things they have. Cooperatives have been pooling their resources before with ma- uh, being mandated to of the largest fund, the Cooperazona Forenza Impresa, CIF, formed by the initiative of at least three major cooperative federations, Legal Coop, Coefa Cooperative, and AGCI in 1986 in the uk this has inspired members of cooperation to campaign for some larger consumer cooperatives to set up funds that would be used to help set up well firms they could buy from italy has a composite of legislation and cooperation that has been built up to facilitate worker buyouts other countries should take note if they are to grasp the upcoming opportunity. Considering firm closures in today's pandemic conditions and the upcoming wave of retiring owners, it is perhaps necessary to put WPOs on the table again and discuss cooperatives as a real alternative to traditional th- firms. I'm kind of wondering how this could work on a local level, as I always do whenever I read about a policy. What city government doesn't really have the economic power to, I don't know, I guess it would, how would it work to have a have workers to have the right to buy, you know, to maybe to have first dibs, but like how do you enforce that? How does that go into a law? You know, it's like I think American property rights are such that like they're so sacrosanct that like you cannot ever tell a company owner or business owner whatever they can do. Like even if they're retiring, they're about to give up their business by retirement or they're, you know, whatever how do you make sure or how do you write a law or have an ordinance that says, well, I, I guess that's a matter of like, well, you know, look, you filed to do business in Albany. That means that when you retire your business, that you will have to offer it to your employees, even if they can't like fund it or whatever, but given the opportunity to, because that's usually the thing that gets people off their butts. You know, the fact that they had the opportunity to sell it, that's what the, um, the Providence coffee shop, you know, the owner offered it to the new unionized workers rather than say, well, I'm going to sell it to Starbucks. You know, and meanwhile, in the Buffalo area, we got the first unionized Starbucks after many, many, many failed unionization drives. There's finally a breakthrough 
and a acceptance of a unionized uh, a, a union at a Starbucks. Uh, I believe it was like an IWW effort. Maybe it wasn't, um, but maybe it was DSAers. But uh, point is that it was finally done. You know, breakthrough. I'd like to investigate more on that. Maybe it's something I should have included in this uh, episode, but I'm not. But it was more recent. Recent news. Hot news. But nothing's really hot with me. It's all about trying to collect one's thoughts after a lot of things have happened and try to make sense of them. Because that's the one true anecdote to the confusion of our times is to really try to understand what's really happening because that's the greatest, if not a weapon, of the ruling class or the the people who own things, uh, rulers, presidents, whatever, the government or corporations. It's about making sure that you're confused about what's really happening. This is what PR does. This is what you know mass media does. It confuses us into not knowing what is real. And when you don't know what is real, you don't know if you can believe anything. So you end up either believing nothing or you do, in fact, believe anything. You'll believe the moon is made of cheese. Or 5G is going to kill you or... Uh, vaccines are uh, well, are, are dangerous, uh, whatever. And masks don't work, blah, blah, blah. Okay, let's move on. I have two stories about students organizing. They're organizing for vastly different things. Uh, but really, um, that does not really... But of course, it's all intersectional, isn't it? First, for the old story. This is the oldest one I got. I say this so long ago. It's a BuzzFeed article. It's it's a but it's the feediest. It's the buzziest. Um, and it was trending at one point, uh, so I saved it uh, for some union show uh, or organizing show. It, it was when there was a lot of teacher strikes, like in West Virginia and stuff, back in 2019. Oh boy! So there's the title: High schoolers are using TikTok. Well, in 2019, so TikTok was a lot smaller. It was just very much just teenagers using it. Uh, to organize a strike in solidarity with their teachers. It's a bit grown by now, but whatever. Anything could go viral, so I was hoping mine would go viral so more people would get informed and want to speak out to get and change, uh, get this change the teachers deserve. So this is filed by Julia Reinstein, August 28th, 2019. So this is really just about students being um, activists, okay? I'm not, there's nothing... Really that radical about this story. It's BuzzFeed, you know, but I found it fun. For high schoolers in the Clark County School District of Nevada, the revolution will not be televised, but it will be TikToked. Now, of course, I think this could be expanded to mean that it will not be on social media. It will The revolution will actually not be a spectacle because we are in. The status quo is the spectacle, and any spectacle... My opinion, my observation, it seems to always be a distraction from getting the important things done, making the actual change. Now, usually, yeah, yeah, because usually like I said when a protest is a spectacle, it's, it's because the state's crushing it. And that's a spectacle. It's interesting, and it's, and it's a riot, riot porn, but it's not actually good. It's not movement building. It's not actually good. It's, you're not watching something good that's happening. Maybe it looks fun, but again, there's, it's not always a one-to-one, but okay. So in solidarity with their teachers who are planning a strike on September 10th to protest being denied raises that they were previously promised, 
Clark County students are using TikTok, an app known for its short and funny videos, to organize their own strike. A student one. Uh, Gillian Sullivan, 16, kicked off the plans for the September 5th student strike after she had a TikTok go viral in which she blasted the unfair conditions under which their teachers were working. Our district is refusing to give teachers who spent the past three years earning enough credits out of their own pockets, spending enough hours outside of school to earn credits to get a raise. And our school district won't give it to them. Like, literally, they won't pay the teachers what the teachers earned. Like, totally. Ugh, grody. I'm not, she's not actually probably a valley girl. She just used like, you know, which is like what a lot of people do. <laughs> so let's see. Three years ago, teachers had been guaranteed professional development raises for furthering their education. But the school district did not budget enough money and offered significantly smaller raises instead. While some compromise has been made, negotiations are still continuing, according to the teachers union. As the school district did not respond to comment. Of course they didn't. Gillian said she decided to organize a strike after her mom, an employee of the district for more than 20 years, ah, so it's in the family, was denied a professional development raise she'd gone back to school to work for. I can't even imagine how frustrating it must be to work at a job and be promised a raise contractually, and then it wasn't actually guaranteed. Gillian decided her fellow students at a football, oh, Foothill High School, <laughs> football high school, <laughs> high school of football. <laughs> it's, a, it's Foothill. Deserved to know how their teachers were being treated. That night I posted on TikTok my Instagram story and my Snapchat story. And I posted to TikTok and I made a Twitter as well. All the bases covered. I just figured it might as well be social media because I know all my friends are there. And it's a good way to get stuff out. No, by there. Sorry. They are on it, not there. It's not real space, okay? <laughs> it obviously blew up. TikTok has more than then 35,000 likes and a tweet from the video went viral as well. Through Gillian's TikTok was only intended for students of the school district, which at more than 300,000 students is the fifth largest in the nation. It quickly spread beyond her classmates. High schoolers across the country commented by the unfair treatment of their own teachers that they have faced. And many said they would strike on September 5th too. Gillian said the response from students in their own district has been super positive and she thinks a critical mass will participate in the strike. A lot of people in my classes have been talking about it. Today, one of my teachers brought it up like, hey, who's not going to be here the fifth? And 10 in their class alone raised their hands. The teachers have been thankful too. A lot of teachers said, have said that they're proud of me and really appreciate that I'm getting more students involved. After Gillian's TikTok made waves. Now, of course, with this, there is an actual concrete material demand that you strike for and you protest for. So you always want to make sure that there is, in fact, a demand, that there is something on the line so that you're not hurting yourself and the powers that be can just do nothing or simply say, well, we can weather this longer than you can. Meaning it hurts you more to say, I mean, see, a student strike like missing a day of class, not a, really a big deal, right? You can make it up later. But what, uh, especially on the college level, you know, the best, the, the, the way, you know, the students withhold their la uh, labor is not taking tests, not accepting grades. Basically saying, look, I've gotten educated. I've gone to my classes. I've written my papers. I, I know the stuff, right? But if I don't do this, that, and the other thing, I can't be guaranteed a degree. I may be giving up that. 
to make a statement or go beyond that, to demand X, Y, and Z, and in the end, yes, get my degree anyway. But I'm, I'm going back to a case where um, basically at Harvard, you had some students kind of thinking about this, but they eventually like they couldn't get enough students to sign on to say they're not going to file the paperwork to finish their degrees, which would hurt the numbers when Harvard says, oh, we had this many graduates or whatever. It has a material impact on them. But it also has a material impact if you don't graduate, you don't have your piece of paper from Harvard, it will affect your opportunities later, right? So you might be hurting yourself more than you hurt Harvard. With a high school, you have to wonder the same thing, you know. But how low can, you know, a graduation rate go down? You're letting them set, you're letting, you know, the establishment set the rules by having, you know, by accepting that you need something from them. Now, what you really need is, say, from schools, ed education. You probably already got that. You don't need a piece of paper, but you only need it to prove to others that you got it, even though you could probably prove it with your effort, your skills, whatever. Um, just like how when you go job hunting, you can have all these pieces of paper. It still doesn't really matter. You have to be hired and show that you do the job well, and then you'll get recommended for another job and another job or what have you. So let's finish this. Uh, teachers have been thankful too. Let's see. Uh, so after Gillian's TikTok made waves, Leonardo Bruno, yeah, Brunino, a 17-year-old at El Dorado High School, voiced his own support for a school district student strike in a three-part TikTok. We should be speaking up about teachers being underpaid and not getting their salary, Leonardo said on the TikTok. Teachers put their, the TikTok, is that accurate? Hmm. Teachers put their life and dedication in teaching us because they are teaching the future of this country. Leonardo told BuzzFeed News he'd previously been outspoken about the treatment of teachers, but decided to join in the TikTok conversation after he saw Gillian's video. And it even could go viral. So I was hoping mine would go viral so more people would get informed and so on and so on. The morning on September 5th, she plans to stand outside the school for friends and tell any students that hadn't yet heard about the strike that they should skip school that day. When school has started, I'm going to go home and I'm probably going to watch TikToks for the rest of the day, she said. More than anything, Gillian hopes the student strike shows the district why paying teachers fairly matters so much. This issue, this raise issue isn't just about money. It's driving teachers' passion out, she said. When teachers aren't passionate, it really affects us, us students. When teachers don't care about their teaching, students don't care about what they're learning. And we're not that important currently, but we're the future of the nation in the school district. Now, of course, just saying you're the future. Isn't it really a threat? How could students or workers in particular make themselves a threat? Well, the thing about school administrators is that they're not really personally profiting. It's like, but unless it's a charter school which is probably where, like, if students are going to strike for basic rights and, and things, uh, it's probably going to be charter schools. But how, how would this work, right, you know, when you, to demand better conditions, for example, like a better building? You have to demand it of the taxpayers or something, right, to, or, or you demand of the city or the school district to raise the school taxes and actually bite the bullet and raise the school taxes, right? But, of course, in New York conservative Democrats or the Democrats have made it impossible to do that by actually instituting a property tax cap where you are limited how high you can raise taxes each year. This is basically to prevent, you know, 
They're raising my taxes too much. They're raising my taxes too much kind of stuff. You know, it's killing us. It's killing us. Unfunded mandates were killing. But see it again. But that's just shifting the burden down. The state should just be funding schools properly so they don't have to tax um, local people to, you know, to the tune of 15 percent or something of that nature. Um, and also they have to keep going up because there's inflation, but the value of things aren't going up or in some areas it's land. But, but if incomes are stagnant, people can't pay higher property taxes. Even though if the property is valued more, the work isn't valued more. Isn't that, isn't that funny? So I mentioned uh, college students, actually, and how they could leverage themselves. Well, here's, an, here's an example of them doing, uh, of a group doing that. And it actually dovetails with uh, police abolition as well as police reform slash the uprising. Students demand abolition coursework from colleges and universities. As the title, this is from the Progressive Magazine. Boy, have I never have I ever read from them? Maybe you've heard of them. It's a long-standing magazine from 1909. It's been for, around for over a century. The Progressive, just the Progressive. And I find it interesting, but anyway, that the Progressive would put out something about abolition. But what have you? So this is a file by a precious Funderin. Yeah, now that I'm uh, I'm doing it. A job where I'm calling a lot of different people. I'm seeing a lot of different kinds of names. I'm seeing people named Precious, some Princess. People, some people, uh, parents name their kid Princess. I mean, basically the names of Zoomers. A lot of normal names, old school, traditional names, but a lot of non-traditional too. So in 2020, defund the police and abolish the police became mainstream political terms. Notable prison abolitionist Ruth Wilson Gilmore was profiled by the Times to combat media coverage that was insisting that Black Lives Matter protesters were demanding police reform. Mayamon Kamba wrote plainly for the Times that protesters are indeed calling for the abolition of police. Covered these issues numerous times, policies of police abolition, the politics of it, mostly the vision. So now, even though scenes of BLM protesters marching in the streets have faded, protesters continue to demand that universities and public schools cut ties with police altogether, as mentioned before. Some of these efforts, such as the University of Minnesota's pledge to reduce its contract with the Minneapolis Police Department, have been successful. In northwestern Columbia and Georgetown, student groups have gathered thousands of signatures calling for their respective institutions to remove police presence from their campuses. But beyond the campaigns to kick out cops from schools, there's also a movement by students in sociology departments to see police and prison abolition perspectives integrated into the curriculum. In some cases, students say sociology departments actively cater to aspiring law enforcement officials, a move some students say does more harm than good by upholding institutionalized white supremacy, anti-blackness, periods, and but so on. So it goes to show that material base, you know, culture, you know, kind of Trump's cultural base. You know, people can go into college thinking, I want to change things. But if all the curriculum, all the programs, all the degrees are for institutional role A, institutional role B, you know, what, you know, IT, if you just compare the, you know, number of programs or degrees that you can earn that have to do with upholding or being a part of the criminal injustice system versus 
programs and degrees that have to do with building alternative economies, well, that's uh, one that's going to be a little lopsided. I, I, I would I would think. I mean, you can go to some of the agricultural universities in New York. There's the Environmental Forestry College in the mid, middle, of the country, uh, middle of the state um, that has various ecological or ecologically based degrees, um, along with you know how to run a dairy farm and whatever, but uh, and how to uh, make biofuel stuff like that. There's all kinds of degrees, but um, there's also a lot of criminal, quote unquote, criminal justice, law enforcement, blah, blah, you know, counterterrorism, how to police and terrorize people. Anyway, so Audrey Rose, sociology graduate student at a small Catholic university in Pittsburgh, believes that white abolition is sometimes discussed. There will never be an entire course dedicated to this perspective in her department. I'm sorry, not, it's not white abolition. Wow, abolition is sometimes discussed. Uh, sorry, I got I got out in the brain, I guess. But you know, white abolition is not is not uh, killing uh, people of lighter skin tone. It's about uh, getting rid of the concept that there is a group of people that is the normals, the people who are normal or the basis for society, or or because you know, just a reminder: white is a political class, not a ethnic or cultural one. And I argue this, and I argue this, and uh, with people in non-cosmopolitan areas, it's a it seems to be a, a moot issue. They just cannot cannot accept that concept that white is a political class because everyone around them does not accept that, so they can't. Because if they did, they would be a complete freak, and no one would listen to them because it's just such a crazy idea that you know. Well, so of course my skin's white. Like no, it isn't. It's peach. It's pinkish. It's, uh, it's light, light-skinned. Why is it important to say you're white? You know, what, where do you draw the line for what's white or what isn't? Is a, is a Hispanic white, you know, light-skinned Hispanic? Is a Slav white? I, this is when he, like, he, uh, I argued with this fellow leftist where, like, you know, he said, like, I, I want the white, instead of, you know, I want white pride to be something positive, someone who has, like, Nikola Tesla uh, poster on his wall instead of David Duke. And I'm like, Nikola Tesla? He's not white. He's a Slav. <laughs> he wouldn't be considered white. He certainly wasn't considered white in his day. <laughs> he probably wouldn't be considered white today. But amazing. Anyway, in some cases, students say sociology, he certainly wouldn't call himself white. That's for sure. So sociology, this is quoting Rose, sociology tends to be pretty liberal no matter where you're going. It's always going to skew the left of institutional stances, Rose says. Most faculty are definitely going to be pro-reform at least. Some are definitely pro-defunding. But even with abolition discussion in classrooms happening from time to time, Rose doesn't see professors, even those with tenure, fully embracing abolitionism. I sincerely doubt, at time, at least in my time, that we'll ever see outright calls for abolition in the classroom, she says. I don't think it'll ever... Now, of course, you know, why is she trying to enforce her views on her professors or whatever? It's more about if you have a defined position in a classroom, it means that the conversation shifts to pro or anti-abolition to how, sorry, how do we do it? And that is, you know, time is money or time is value. Um, not so much money, but valuable. And we don't want to spend our time, if you are committed to something, arguing whether it should be done or not, but how to do it. And so if you're going to pay 
you're, especially because time is money in college. If you're going to pay for classes, you want it to be for things you want to actually talk about. Not talk about whether something should be done, because then you could spend your time getting your graduate degree, degree arguing for abolition, but not how to do it. So you're, you have your piece of paper, but you're left with unanswered questions. Now you have to spend another four years figuring out or finding space or making space or paying for space to discuss that. So I want to go over that before I continue. I don't think it'll ever be wholesale endorsed by a professor or by a department or by an institution, certainly not in my time. You know, you need these sociology graduates to become professors themselves. But some sociology students are calling on their departments to completely cancel carceral curricula. Okay, we can, so we can do some canceling here, okay? <laughs> what does it mean to study something that you think doesn't need to exist? Says Rashan Malodono a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Sociology at Georgetown U. Maladero believes many sociologists have strong financial incentives to never get rid of a curriculum that she, he says advocates for policing and prisons. They make excuses for cops to remain cops, for the state to remain the state, for the prison industrial complex to remain that. For a lot of sociologists, they can't support prison abolition because then their jobs would be gone. They'd have nothing to study. Seems kind of reductionist to kind of put it that way, but so on. Last June, Amber Hamilton, a candidate in the Department of Sociology at the University of Minnesota, wrote a series of tweets and a letter explaining her, asking her professors to rethink how they talk about the prison industrial complex. On May 20, you know, usually it's talked about like a natural institution or something. Uh, so quoting, I guess, the letter, on May... 27th, 2020, University of Minnesota President Joan Gabriel, Gable announced that the university would cut ties with the Minneapolis Police Department in the wake of George Floyd's murder, Hamilton wrote. As such, continued advertisement of courses as a path toward law enforcement and inviting law enforcement officers to our classroom represent a hypocritical disjuncture between the stated policy and the practice of the department. Soon after, faculty and students hosted internal workshops to discuss how classrooms could implement readings about abolition. We're hearing about defunding the police. We're hearing about decarceration and abolition. Some, some people don't even know what that means, says the University of Minnesota PhD candidate Amber Powell. So there's definitely a big push by grad students to say this should be more at the forefront of what we do. And the push isn't only happening with graduate students. For the University of Minnesota sociology professor, Michelle Phelps, the degree to which abolition views went mainstream didn't surprise her, but she still has questions. I remember having conversations with my research team like, what should we make of this moment? Is this really a turning point, or is this like a flash in the pan that will be buried by the next crisis? Months after a pledge to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department disintegrated, the city council voted to divest only $8 million from their proposed 100 and 79 million budget. That's the police budget. Phelps says moves like this lean more towards symbolic accomplishments than any real abolition end goals. She fears the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol may even steer the conversation toward more funding for the police, which, in fact, it has. Something worse than conservatives thinking that we've defunded the police and that's why there's more crime. It's like, no, some areas actually funded the police more. You know, it's a counter-protesters. But also you. But not really. 
There is a whole push to abolish police and prisons in the 1960s and got quite a lot of traction. And the response to that was, of course, mass incarcerations, he says. There's a lot of open questions as to where this leads. To the whole backfire of like, look, if you ask for something, you're just going to get the opposite. So truly, the lesson is always to ask for nothing. (laughs) Phelps and her research team have spent the last four years studying policing, community perceptions of policing, and so on. I have more students at the end of that class than I have ever had in my life say, this class has made me an abolitionist and I want to fight for it. So let's go to the end. So this isn't so much uh, student organizing as much as student activism. It's very much activist mold, not organizational. This is where the conversation gets sticky for me because I don't know what we want people to... Maybe I hadn't... I don't think I read all of this. I just read the headline, students you know, do this. But of course, it's... Um, the progressive. So they're not going to talk about it as far as like in terms of organizing, they're going to talk about it like individual activists or individual people, social justice warriors doing their thing. And that's how progress is made. <laughs> okay. Whatever. So let's see if I can end the show with this or maybe, but well, this is an op-ed at an anthropology magazine type, um, called Sapiens. So this is not an anarchist magazine. This is an uh, anthropology magazine where an anarchist is writing something. So he has to go through all the usual paragraphs of explaining anarchism and explaining what it is and isn't uh, for the audience of this magazine, which I will skip because this is a show that assumes you are not a dummy and that you know, at the very least, what anarchism is. I've covered that in plenty of other episodes. But what I want to cover with this is the thesis of the op-ed, made by its title, Anarchism in Practice is Often Radically Boring Democracy. Anarchists have been an easy scapegoat for violent events in recent months, but anarchism as a political philosophy is fundamentally about collective deliberation and responsibility. So this was published a whole winter ago, 22nd of February, 2021. By David Flood, who is a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Virginia. Two hours into a weekly planning session, the 15 or so black clothed, tattooed, and pierced activists were getting cranky. People wanted action, and tempers were flaring. I thought that my research on leftist organizing might finally get exciting. But then the meeting facilitator quickly reminded everyone of the group's commitment to discussion and consensus and thus called for a 10-minute break. After milling around and getting snacks, everyone filed back into the cold and comfortable break room at the back of a small bookstore. It took another full hour of orderly debate before the group finally achieved a consensus on a strategy for the next action, which was a weekly food collection for hungry families. Curiously, the word these activists used to describe this commitment to group accountability was anarchy. Uh, Now this goes back to unheard of yet i've explained but uh fellow anarchist friend of mine um who's now my new roommate actually but anyway he does comedy he does open mic nights and he was he wanted to do a set a little joke about anarchists you know oh my least favorite people my fellow anarchists we take forever to make uh decisions we'll have three hour meetings uh all to decide where to put a bookshelf and uh, the only thing we can really decide after three hours of debate and deliberation is that um that the discussion has to be tabled. Okay. So, 
As an anthropologist who has studied and worked with left act leftist activists in the U.S. for more than a decade, I've come to understand anarchy as something that looks very different from the violent, lawless chaos that many people picture it. Uh, okay, Trump is still president, so he talks about you know how Trump is referred to the anarchists, the anarchists. You know, he talks about anything during his uh, rallies, and he would talk about the anarchists are coming for you, Antiva. <laughs> The kind of dissonance would be amusing if the situation weren't so horrifying. If there had been actual anarchy in the Capitol that day, rather than a right-wing insurrection, Oops, I don't want to call it that. Democrats are calling it that, and they've they've actually um, followed up on their rhetoric and charged some of them with uh, sedition. Yikes. Uh, would likely have been in for a long, well-facilitated meeting aimed at complete consensus. That's what the Republican colleagues would have really been in for. So he explains anarchy as a political philosophy, self-governance, a little bit of individualism there. Taking the term to its broadest sense, attempts at anarchist societies or collectives over the last two centuries have been numerous and persistent, if often short-lived. However, as anthropologists like to point out, humans organized themselves in the stateless societies with great success for much of ancient history. Blah, blah, blah. Contemporary anti-fog groups represent a direct action wing of an existing anarchist organizing. In other words, most of them are anarchists who specifically focus on confronting fascists. Talk about Antifa, 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 Antifa. Done enough of that, done my own shows, done my own black block. So just refer to the Antifa that comes home. An episode earlier that I did, that was, that was like episode 20 or something. Probably not online anymore. I'll have to check. Probably. No, I have everything in my archive. Everything's up on the archive. That's uh, 3 news. But you have to include the www backslash backslash uh, HTTPS colon. If you don't leave that out, it doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> or you do a Google search for 3 lefts show and you will find it there. As political philosophers have long noted, it is much more complicated and difficult for people to rule themselves than to be ruled or represented. So it's a matter of convenience. You know, Americans, we're so addicted to convenience. We have to have our convenience. And what's more convenient than being ruled by others? <laughs> Even though there's all this, I'm a free in person, I'm a free citizen, you show no competence for ruling yourself, sir, or governing a community. I mean, if anything, there's a there's an outright revulsion and rejection of governing in a community. So whether anarchists in question are organizing a prison book collective, community fun, food drive, or living wage protest, meetings and planning sessions are characterized by complicated strategies and procedures aimed at establishing complete consensus. Though I personally have studied a lot of this, I wouldn't call it overly complicated. It's more like you just have to learn it. And if you think learning something new is complicated and overly, you know, hard, well, I don't know how to help you then. Except I'll be patient. But it's just about you have to try. You have to put in the effort. It's not convenient, true. But the results are, well, worth it. Anyway. So in the case of anarchists described earlier who were running a food drive, the full hour of debate after the break came down to this question. Should they collect only healthier foods? Or in this case, did any calories count as good calories? One young woman, growing increasingly impatient, had shouted, Look, I've got two garbage bags full of perfectly good bagels from the bakery leftovers. I'd rather they not get completely stale while we sit here all week arguing about the ethics of giving hungry people white bread. 
A young man responded with a concern. We're trying to help people. We shouldn't be giving them all this nasty processed food just because that's all we can get. Eventually, as a facilitator moved through an orally speaking rotation, also called a go-around or a stack, but if you go through everybody in, a, in the circle, it's a go-around. Some in the group who have grown up poor talked about the dignity of making their own choices, and the group reached consensus. They would simply collect whatever free food they could find and offer it through their community connections. The meeting ended up taking, you know, so it just comes a matter of why are we feel the right to make decisions for other people about whether they should be eating healthy or not, which is something that conservatives attempt to do all the time. Let's not do that. They do, please. And say, look, they're spending their food stamps on um, unhealthy food and junk food. You should just take it from them. What? So they can eat beans, beans and rice every day. (laughs) That's not good nutrition either. So meeting, uh, the meeting ended up taking three hours long, but this characteristic tedium is a feature of anarchism and one that is inseparable from its insistence on genuine democracy. Now, of course, the amount of time it takes is kind of dependent on the size of the group. So I am very much a proponent of this system called sociocracy, which is not overly complicated, though, again, difficult to learn, perhaps, but it basically boils down to keep the group small, and it doesn't take an hour to do a go-around or to do three go-arounds, let's say. So everybody kind of gives their piece three times. That takes an hour. That's why it takes three hours, because everyone speaks three, four, you know, multiple times. So everyone feels heard, and everyone gets to put in their piece, and everyone gets to say, okay, that's fine. Um, smaller the group, the faster you can do that. It only takes one hour to do you know, such a decision. Uh, instead of three hours is what I mean. So, if, but here's the point I want to get to. If authoritarianism depends on spectacle and stagecraft, democracy is by contrast, often a boring affair. Unlike the siege of the Capitol or a typical Trump rally with few exceptions, most anarchism actually in existence is much like this peaceful, constructive, and pretty dull. This lack of spectacle, in fact, marks a key difference between far-left forms of political organizing, like Antifa, and the far-right forms on display in D.C. That means, you know, referring to the Unite the Right rally, or January 6th of last year. As I saw firsthand at the counter-protest in Charlottesville, the former is pro-democracy and the latter is authoritarian. Now, if in practice, both of these movements tend to mistrust centralized government, anarchists are suspicious of its forms, even representative, because they find it insufficiently democratic. In contrast, many of the far right overly glorify actual fascists. You know, and they hate government because it's too representative, too deliberative. In the end, it is perhaps no surprise that along with Black Lives Matter activists, one of the leftist boogeyman for Trump and followers have been a scattered pro-democracy movement. In a bit of strategic hypocrisy, far right's vilification of Antifa maps precisely onto the actual characteristics of Trumpian politics, which is centralized, violent, nihilistic, and a spectacle. Which concerns me, because when it comes to the left online, it fully embraces skeptical, because that's what gets you clicks, that's what gets you attention, and the attention economy is spectacle. It's all society of the spectacle. Opposite of democracy. Right? When it comes to left, leftism online, There is no democracy. There is no leftism. It's a pseudo 
characterized mime, pantomime leftism. Having nice, deep philosophical or policy-based discussions that aren't, that can happen online, by the way, okay, but they're not spectacles and they're not what's popular or getting attention or building leftism, or it's not seen as such. But I see it as building leftism far more than the usual stuff. So I want to finish up here. While the reasons for these uh, mischaracterizations are complicated, I would argue in principle anarchist organizing comes close to something that might cautiously be called leftist populism, democratic politics in opposition to an entrenched elite. As such, it seems to be discomforting across political lines. If Trumpist populism has been in effect white ethno-nationalism, as some have argued, the liberal response appears to be a revived faith in the benevolence of centrist party elites. Neither of these governing philosophies look fondly upon decentralized democracy. Some anti-fascist protests have led to violence, destruction, and vandalism. Still, the principles underlying anti-fascist organizing are democratic in the truest sense. I mean, if Antifa attacks private property, it's because private property is not very democratic either. It's not at all. So in this moment, in history, teaches nothing else. It shows how badly the U.S. needs both a national anti-fascist movement and a more directly representative, accountable democracy. So I just want to make that point, which is basically anti-spectacle. But thus is the paradox of our, um, not our times, but the, the times, the zeitgeist, that American culture is nothing but spectacle. And if you're not uh, making a spectacle, you're not seen, and you're not able to, you know, it's not even... Uh... But then I go back to, you know, I'd, now the purpose of reviewing that thing about the students using TikTok. Was that a spectacle? Maybe not. I would lean towards saying that wasn't a society of spectacle kind of thing. They're using TikTok. And they're using it to make a video about a political point, reasonably, though I did not watch it. But I assume she wasn't doing it while doing a funky dance. But it also went viral nonetheless. It got attention, the attention economy, without being a spectacle. Unless you consider going on strike a spectacle, which I can suppose it is. Because a strike, though, a big news item, is also not really building alternative economies. It's not building democracy in as far as I see it. It's building collective action, which eventually becomes these things. And so it's like the first step. That's just me hamming it up slash mulling over these ideas. So I trust that you can do that yourself as well. Continue mulling these ideas as I thank you for listening to this show as I wrap up. Porn is skills talking, so I plan to listen to any constructive feedback or ideas for the show. But particularly, I'm following my own ideas uh, since I don't get many, a lot of input. So shame on you for not giving me input. How dare you? So this program is made in part of an independent community radio station. So support this station materially, along with any other donation or membership to WCAALP at GrandArts.org. Or support us with your time by telling others you believe will be interested. Now, I also have my own Patreon and LibrePay. Which, uh, which is similar to Patreon, but go to Patreon, just a few bucks. It really does help. It goes to my bank account, though part of it goes to Patreon. LibrePay takes less because they're a nonprofit, so I suggest you use them. It's uh, basically, you know, 
threelefts.org. Uh, no, this is not threelefts.org. But search for the Three Left Show on Patreon or LibrePay. But the best way to support us is telling others about the show, especially those interested, uh, liking and sharing our social media pages. I have it on uh, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Mastodon, and um, I'm also on Twitch, but I don't post a lot. But I did make a, 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 a stream about a week ago or two weeks ago. And I also do some uh, streams with other people that I like and that I've met and done their show. And so I kind of appear as a reappearing guest because I do not like streaming online alone. I like doing it with other people. It should always be a social thing. So this episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, but a full archive of the show can be found along with show notes and sources and info about myself are found at threelefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here in practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three lefts. <laughs>